Hello and welcome to Hypot Enthuse, the podcast of the Faculty of Mathematical and Physical Sciences at UCL, or as we like to call it, <laughs> MAPS. Uh, my co-host Maimana and I are here in late December, uh, just before the end of uh, lockdown, although I think we'll be uh, getting to discuss that later. And we're here with Dr. Karina Fernley. Karina is an associate professor in the Department of Science and Technology Studies and is the director of the Warning Research Centre, a UCL cross-collaborative centre based in the Department of STS. Karina, thank you for joining us. Hello. Hi. Now, we're here a few hours uh, before you're due to go on, well, I was about to say go on stage in Lima, but obviously, if only. Uh, due to the current situation, uh, Karina will be sat in her living room. Yes, I'm being transported to Peru, yeah, to Lima and Peru. Uh, but before she's about to give a talk uh, to an audience in Peru, the subject of this talk is going to be early warning systems. Uh, Karina, could you, what can you tell us about your talk? Could you summarise your entire talk for us in about 30 seconds? Yeah, so I recently wrote a, a paper that was published in the International Journal of Disaster Risk Reduction around um, early warning systems for pandemics and, and basically trying to discuss how we can learn lessons from other natural hazards. So hazards like volcanoes, earthquakes, hurricanes, even the weather, which we experience either daily or much more frequently, where there are early warning systems in place and alert level systems. And some of those lessons that have been learned about these hazards and being implemented in different countries around the world or even internationally can be applied to the pandemic context, of course, with an eye to the particular nuances of a virus or a disease, of course, that needs to be taken into consideration. So we we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We can actually learn from those lessons and apply them in, in this context. And really on top of that, it's it's really also recognising the fact that, uh, well, we knew a pandemic was going to come and we weren't prepared for it and, and really thinking about what, what we could do for the next time. Okay, that sounds really fascinating. So do you think you could actually start by telling us the differences between um, some terms that you use? There? So the, a warning, an alert, a hazard, I think those are all separate things, but we colloquially sometimes just kind of interchange them. Yeah, so a hazard is really an event that happens that that, that essentially um, poses a threat. Of course, if there's no one around, it's a bit like if the tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, did, did it really matter that it fell? Um, and so actually hazards in themselves aren't really that dangerous. It's actually society uh, and us or potentially um, the impact that 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 hazard has on the environment, for example, if you're looking at in that context, that that is is it poses a risk. And then, so when we get into risk, it's about how do we manage that that risk to try and uh, mitigate against the impact of that hazard. So um, disasters are actually not really caused by the hazard; they're caused by our response and our societal response to that. So um, early warning systems or any warning system is really about trying to give people a bit of a heads up about something that's going to happen so they can prepare for it uh, and that can take different guises so I published a paper with my colleague at UCL Dr Simon Day a few a few years ago and we actually said you know warnings can exist for like three kind of types of hazards so you've got the, the topic of, of volcanoes which is one close to my heart which is all um, is about being anticipatory so we we don't know when the volcano is going to erupt so we anticipate it and we we need to get people off that volcano before it erupts because when it erupts it's too late. 
But then we have something like a, a tsunami, for example. We have an earthquake. We know that earthquakes, if they happen underwater, can generate very large tsunamis. And therefore, um, we can respond to the fact that, you know, a tsunami has been generated and then give that warning and say, guys, you've got 20 minutes or you've got 20 hours to get to safety, depending on where you are. And then the other type of, of kind of mitigation strategy we can have is something that's permanent. So like we can have flood defences in place. So it doesn't, doesn't matter when it rains or how much it rains, we've got permanent uh, flood defences, dams, structures in place. Uh, and therefore we don't really need a warning because actually the infrastructure is designed to cope with it. But warnings themselves are typically thought as something that's like a siren that just goes off and people respond to it. Um, or that it's a piece of technology. We get a, a message on our, our phone, for example. But actually, warnings are way beyond that. In fact, you know, warnings just simply do not work if you just get a, 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 a siren going off. And classic example is, you know, you might be sitting in your office and the fire drill goes off and everyone sort of goes, oh, oh no, you know, it's going to interrupt my work or maybe I should go and get a coffee whilst I've got to leave the building, you know. And actually, if if people knew that it wasn't a drill, for example, they might actually respond very differently. So the thing about warnings is that actually it's an investment in terms of preparedness. You need to make sure mm-hmm. that people understand um, what what the hazard is, what kinds of warning they're going to get, the timescales, what they can do in response to that. They need to be educated about um, all that information. But equally, the public or the people who are going to be affected need to respond speak with the scientists and the people designing the system to make sure that it's effective for them like what do what do these people need and so a warning system is is hugely complex from you know from everything from the scientists monitoring data deciding indicators deciding when to give a warning designing that warning system communicating that people acting on it people believing it because you know different nations have different relationships with their governments as well and and then and then acting on it knowing what to do and and being able to do what they have to do as well Uh, you know evacuate to high ground for example not not easy if there's no high ground around so you need to have evacuation structures built in order to deal with that so warnings are hugely complicated and in in many ways i see them as one of the key tools in disaster risk reduction measures to try and manage uh, what are natural hazards that can then lead to disasters now just to come on to the final bit which is alert level systems alert level systems are a type of warning system that is essentially usually a four five six level uh, warning system that is designed to communicate in a very shorthand way what's going on so for example uh, with volcanoes we have sort of normal behavior don't worry about it or next level is something's there's some unrest we might want to think about that then it's like oh no actually we're starting to see a small volcanic explosion or some significant hazards or you know we're in a big catastrophic blowout you need to really be aware of this and so we we have that with our weather forecasting as well you know warnings about rain and storm and we'll think about do we want to go on holiday or take an umbrella with us that that day and and so you know These alerts help give a heads up as to what's going on so we can prepare for it. Um, And and in many ways, the 
the the work that I'm doing is really about how could we potentially apply such an alert level system to um, infectious diseases or to COVID, for example. And, and we've seen an example, two systems here in the UK, um, and we see systems in places like New Zealand, South Africa, uh, Viet, um, Vietnam, South Korea that have been incredibly successful. Um, and so... Um, you may also consider why is someone who studies volcano alert level systems interested in COVID alert level systems? Um, well, this year I've actually come to reflect on the fact that volcano alert level systems are actually some of the most diverse alert level systems in practice in the whole world. They take a huge range of designs and um, they've been operating for many, many years and they deal with vast amounts of uncertainty, unlike weather which is a little bit more certain not always but mostly more certain and they also have been evolving so many countries or nations have um improved their systems over the years and gone this hasn't worked this has worked we need to adapt to it and so because in many ways these systems have evolved organically in these different nations around the world um, we can learn an awful lot about alert level systems generically and then apply that to covid and so i think um volcanoes can provide some very important lessons learned and observations to take on board that's uh, really fascinating. That's I mean, there's brilliant. at least three or four fascinating things that you raised there. One thing which came to mind, uh, with regards to warning systems for things like volcanoes, obviously there are huge cultural differences uh, throughout the world. I mean, if you live 50 metres from a, a volcano, the warning system is going to be much more important than if you live 300 kilometres away from one. Um, so I would assume that countries uh, like New Zealand, uh, which have had natural disasters uh, fairly recently, have got a much closer uh, working relationship with these warning systems than, say, the UK does. It, it makes sense that different countries would have different systems. Then something like COVID comes along, which is less affected by geographical boundaries. I'm wondering, is there any, uh, any difference in how countries have adapted their existing systems? Um, to deal with this threat and whether you can see any connection between how the existing systems of a country like New Zealand have worked in, in comparison to something like the UK? Um, New Zealand uh, were very quick off the mark in terms of developing their alert level system and that was very advantageous and it may well have been that New Zealand had already prepared a draft alert level system for uh, an infectious disease or ep epidemic because they they're that much closer to to places um, which have had outbreaks more recently with MERS and and, and SARS and so on. Um, but it is a it is a nation that is is uh, very well versed in terms of alert level systems for tsunamis, earthquakes, severe weather hazards, landslides. That they've they've got it all really in New Zealand. So and so it's a nation that's very attuned to to the fact that we have natural hazards, as is places like Japan as well. Um, so um, in that sense, there there is a, a much greater awareness of the value of alert level systems and warning systems than perhaps here in the UK. But to be fair, the UK does suffer from a number of different hazards. We've had a lot of flooding in recent years, and perhaps it's more a reflection of the fact that the UK hasn't perhaps devised effective warning systems or been able to communicate these within the public um, so there's great enough awareness um, that has somewhat perhaps led to 
a slightly more ineffective awareness generally within the population of alert levels and warning systems. So I think it's a bit of a missed opportunity here in the UK. And of course, even with volcanoes, um, one of the biggest hazards of volcanoes are ash clouds. And as we know from the Eiffel-Yokola eruption in 2010, those can travel a long way from the volcano. And that impacted the UK too. Um, and so I think really it's perhaps the difference is just that the frequency and the scale of events or the severity of events um but you know of course flooding is is, is a deeply serious and, and dangerous hazard in itself so it is very difficult to to compare nations and i think one of the issues that i've um been challenged of when looking at covid alert level systems is the issues around standardization so certainly standardization is a really important thing because it makes it easy for everyone to understand like we all use a red amber green traffic light and if we started using different systems we would be having a lot more car accidents right so it's important we have standardized systems because everyone from the, the person standing on the beach looking at the tsunami wave coming towards them right through to the prime minister right through to the head of the united nations everyone is able to understand that one system and it's very hopefully very clear and well known and that's very useful but What's actually more important is that a system is designed to help that local community and that may not work from one local community to another in the same country or another in a different country because we have such different cultural, social, economical, political contexts and, um, and, and religious beliefs as well. So there's a need to really make sure that we are able to accommodate the local but within a, a broader standardised system. So there needs to be flexibility where you can get that snapshot. And that's really what an alert level system is. And, and to make it work on a local level, you have to have additional information, so like bulletins or information statements or uh, slight tweaks locally. Um, but of course, a, a pandemic, unlike most other hazards, um, I think, the, you know, if we look at asteroids, that's a global hazard. If we look at tsunamis, they, they can be incredibly international, especially across the Pacific Ocean. Um, but pandemics in particular are, you know, there are no boundaries. Um, and, and much like volcanic ash, you know, it just doesn't respect um, boundaries or cultures and therefore what we're looking at here is actually a need for standardization across different nations um, because we need to be able to communicate that information and one of the reasons we need to, to give that information is because um, epidemics and pandemics are actually even though they're an environmental hazard, a natural hazard, they are different. There are different nuances that are bespoke to that. And those differences are, it's actually very hard to know when we're leading up to a crisis and identifying it. So we might see that the people are presenting themselves at hospital with a, a funny pneumonia and people might be like, oh, that's just, you know, it's just a, a different seasonal flu or pneumonia this year. Um, and then there'll be a sort of critical mass building up and then people will be like, oh, what's going on here? Maybe we need to do some testing. You know, in, in the meantime, this is now spreading all around the local area, national, international. And so the problem is, is that once you actually identify um, the point that actually we have here an outbreak of something new that's very dangerous, it's actually too late. So we can't respond to it and we can't anticipate it. Right. Because 
because you, we, by the time you identify it, it's too late. It's not like the murmurings of a volcano that we can see something is going to happen. And that makes it incredibly challenging. And those are the particular nuances of something like COVID. And so really the only way you can kind of deal with that is by having a permanent mitigation structure in place. So it's our flood barriers, basically. We need to have warnings and alerts in place where countries can openly say, oh my goodness, we think there's something up here. We need to start perhaps raising awareness. People need to start thinking about, you know, being a bit more careful at airports and travel. And as more and more certainty comes into play, things happen like borders start shutting. We start to eliminate this and, you know, shut down, eliminate basically, which is what New Zealand did. And they did it very successfully. Um, and, and the thing is that most disasters, most disasters are actually caused by politics, um, and of course, any any country where there's something weird presenting itself is going to want to make sure that they know what's going on, what, what's happened. They don't want to present themselves in a, in a poor light. And so um, actually, that's very challenging because emergency managers or civil protection are a bit like, we don't really care whether there's a great bigger certainty. We don't really care what the cultural contexts and so on are. We just need to manage the situation because that's their job, right? And so essentially um, the challenge is negotiating those politics and enabling nations to be able to be more transparent in a safe way so that so that nations can actually respond more effectively. That was a brilliant answer. <laughs> Thank you so much. I think I just wanted to tease out kind of two of the main challenges which I think you've drawn out there. So... Um, especially because actually I'm a, a master's student of science and technology studies so a lot of the <laughs> issues you're talking about are very heavily sort of SDS issues one of them being um, scientific uncertainty and then another being kind of this this really interdisciplinary nature of what you do so navigating political um, alliances tensions so I was wondering because of these two very sort of um, different challenges, one of them being coordinating across so many different actors and the other maybe being how do you predict what a hazard is doing or how can you how can you respond to something that when the data is changing so often. Um, so this must pose kind of quite significant challenges to how you communicate effectively. So I'm just wondering as to how how you kind of navigate those two issues. That's a really good question. I wish I knew the answer to that. Um, and, you know, um, <laughs> no, that's fair I'm, I'm, you know, currently put in research grants to try and investigate this further because clearly I'm not a specialist in um, mm -hmm. disease outbreaks. So I don't really know how how they were. I know the UN have their own warning system and um, they've had that in place for a number of years, quite a few decades. And uh, they are trying to exactly focus on that issue of how do we reduce the scientific uncertainty and communicate that around diseases. And there have been success stories, like Ebola mm -hmm. was a success story that was able to be managed down and the death toll was was pretty small given how incredibly dangerous a virus it is. And so there have been success stories and there's lots to be learned from those. But I think the very nature of, yes, there's scientific uncertainty because we don't know necessarily what a particular virus is or how it's going to impact people. And of course, at the beginning of this pandemic, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty about, well, can we, can we touch things? How does it transmit and all this kind of thing? Um, but but um, 
in many ways, the sort of scientific uncertainty is we're kind of ignorant of it, actually, because we don't know that something's happening until there's a critical mass that's developing that suggests there is something. And that's where we need to make sure that, you know, hospitals and, and, and medical units are really keeping their eye on this and being able to transparently communicate this uh, and flag this for investigation. But as I said before, the, the issue is at that point, it's kind of too late. And so it then, so then it is like, we need to, we need to take action. And, and as you say, the way you, the only way you can respond to that is by having policies in place already so that it's very quick. So we, we're not sitting around debating what we're going to do. There's this weird thing. Everyone goes, there's this weird thing. Let's go to the shelf let's get the plan off, let's discuss it, right, you're supposed to do this, we're supposed to increase our protective equipment, hospitals need to do this, schools need to do this, we need to tell the public this is the alert level system, let's start getting everything in place. Because then you're much more agile and you can adapt to the situation, right? So that's yeah. that's what needs to be done is all that preparedness and that needs to happen on a national and international level so that as you start to rise up the alert level should there actually be an incident then you are then prepared and you can act and the public are informed and they are aware and you know that's no easy thing it's, it's no easy thing it's, it's certainly easy for government it's easier sorry I should say for governments and for emergency managers and civil protection to develop these plans they're doing it all the time for all sorts of hazards it's not so easy to say, hey, public, you need to be aware that an asteroid might fall on your head or that a super volcano may happen and change the climate and we will have famine for, you know, hundreds of years, maybe thousands. Or, you know, you're going to get this virus that's going to ruin your year and you're going to spend your time in your four walls this year, you know, so when the public are already concerned in many countries about health, education, security, more importantly, food, clean water. And so actually, you know, there is a pecking order here and you you do have to have some... uh, some pity for the poor politicians who are trying to balance those very immediate needs with those very sort of far off kind of precautionary investments that may not play out. But of course, as we've seen, when they do play out, they can be incredibly costly, both, you know, mentally, socially, economically. And so it's really, really hard. But yeah, the good news is that actually preparedness for a pandemic or preparedness for a flood is pretty much the same policies and procedures it's just applying it to a different hazard and finding what that bespoke is that bespoke hazard requires and so that to me seems the best way of dealing with it because of not the scientific uncertainty it's actually the scientific ignorance of something going on so this was something else that that fascinated me obviously with these kinds of uh, situations, there will always be changes, especially with novel viruses like this. As your scientific understanding develops, uh, the approach that you're going to take will will obviously change. However, when you look at the, what the UK has done, the first warning system we had uh, was five discrete tiers. And we were immediately told upon being shown these five tiers that we are at level 3.5 which shows that the warning system there doesn't account for the different levels that people may be at. Then, after that, we we brought in a three-tier system, 
which was immediately followed by suggestions that some areas should move to 3+, which again shows that the three tiers don't take into account all of the possibilities. Now, obviously, you could go too far in the other direction. Uh, a tier system with 57 different levels wouldn't work. <laughs> People wouldn't be able to distinguish the differences between them. So when you're designing these systems... Should governments be building in some redundancy or some room to expand as as the scientific knowledge increases? You know, is there a limit where you can say, well, that amount of precision isn't actually helpful when it comes to a, a tier system? Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head. Yeah, because, you know, especially it's even more complicated with volcanoes because you've got different hazards going in different directions as well. So it's like, well, there's ash, but there's no lava flow. So, you know, um, basically... It is impossible for alert level systems to convey all information. And that's the fallacy is that alert level systems alone can communicate what is needed. They can't. All an alert level system is a heads up. Essentially, you know, my research has shown that essentially it's kind of like, hey, things are normal. You don't need to worry. The next stage is, hey, things are abnormal. You need to start paying attention. Then the next stage is if you want to have four stages is kind of, you know, things are getting quite serious now. You really need to be starting to prepare. And like now we're, we're in it. You need to be really responding to what's going on. And, and level four is how are you not dead yet? <laughs> Potentially, <laughs> yes. Um, if, you know. Oh, no. <laughs> so the idea is that alert level systems are really, in my view, in my expertise, um, is basically an awareness level. And there's a limit as to what you can convey in that. You know, that's why we have the information statements. That's why we have bulletins to provide specific information. Now, you don't want to have too many alert levels. It gets really confusing. And the fact that the UK designed a three-tier system that didn't have three plus or one or zero, yeah, um, is, is kind of a bit, reflects the fact that there needs to be real careful thought in how you design these systems so that you don't come into these problems, right? And so if you look at, for example, the New Zealand alert level system, you know, four alert levels, and each alert level is tied to very specific actions that you can and cannot do in different facets in life, whether it's work, healthcare, uh, going out, schooling, businesses, and so on. So everyone was very clear that at that alert level, this is what the rules are. And that's a very sophisticated and intricate alert level, and it worked really well for New Zealand. Um, the UK, for example, ha started off with their national uh, COVID alerts, although it wasn't actually applied in anywhere but England, but then the other the other three nations adopted uh, versions of those, um, had very, very little criteria associated with that. And they were talking about different steps between different levels. And, you know, we need step one, two and three. And as you say, half levels. And it's very, very confusing. I think, you know, People keep asking me about what's going on. I was like, I'm confused and I'm an expert, you know, like I can't get my head around oh, this. And, and, oh, we're doomed. And exactly, if, if, if the public can't understand a system, then how are they going to know what they do, need to do or not do and make it very clear and for that to be enforced and regulated as well? So there needs to be clarity. So when we're dealing with something that's so complex, which most environmental hazards are, we need simplicity and simplicity is the answer because we cannot convey all those complexities. So just a simple three, four alert level system, usually four is generally the standard, 
is enough to be able to convey and it needs some careful thinking about what are those alert levels going to be what criteria is it to go from one alert level to another and are there going to be specific measures restrictions guidance associated with those for the public some nations have been far more effective at doing that than than others so um so i think that the fear is that we need to develop these complex systems we don't the in my view, the only way we can deal with complexity is by keeping it simple and by expecting the alert level purely to be able to raise awareness and then issuing alerts, information, broadcasts that provides more specific guidance. And actually, more importantly as well, is just having everything on a website that's really easy to navigate. Um, the UK government have changed their website and information several times and and, you know, I've been asked in many interviews this year, many questions about the original national alert level system. And I was just simply unable to answer those questions because there was no information online about it. So it's hugely important that a government is completely transparent and open about their system and how their decisions are being made. And of course, we have the Joint Biosecurity Centre established and... Um, that's a new centre. There's very little information about it. We don't really know how alert levels are assigned apart from this R value. We don't really know how R values are being assigned. And it's kind of depending on the testing and the testing's come in slow. So it sort of all kind of makes a bit of a jumbled mess. And this is to reinforce my point, why it's so important to be prepared, because if you're prepared and you've got your testing lined up, you've got your alert level, you know what you're going to do, then bang, when it hits, you can just present it and the public will go, great, our government's organised, they know what they're doing, we can implement it, we've got clear guidance, we've got a plan, we've got a strategy and we can work on that. Off the back of that, actually, I was thinking, so you have an article that you published recently, I think, in The Conversation, um, the title of which was the UK government's tiered COVID-19 alert systems are all flawed, warns disaster expert. And for some of the listeners who might not have read that article, do you think you can maybe explain why it was so flawed? Why maybe what you would have done differently? What some of the um, kind of key errors were in communicating to the public? Yeah, I think one of the interesting things about the UK COVID alert level system was that, you know, we had the first transmission registered on the 28th of February, um, certainly much earlier than the system that was then actually um, implemented um, on the 10th of May was originally um, discussed by the Prime Minister. And so... Um, What's interesting is it, it took a long time to, to pull this together and, and one would have liked to have thought that there would have been a lot of experts involved, but unfortunately it's not possible to actually um, establish what expertise was involved in that in terms of devising the alert levels. I've sort of identified seven key things that I felt from my experience of working alert levels were an issue. And the first thing was that the alert level um, criteria wasn't clear and it was uncertain. It was based on the, the R values and the, the R value is, of course, a very tricky thing to identify at the time. We weren't testing a lot of people or test results or test the testing process isn't, of course, 100 percent accurate. We're getting false negatives or false positives. And so you have that in any medical uh, situation. But of course, um, you know, yes, we needed an R value, but what was that R value and how meaningful was that if testing wasn't widely available? So how did we really know what the R value was to determine that alert level? So, um, and also um, it kind of gave a very clear statement that actually 
the alert level system as being driven by science only and that the science was the only thing driving why we should raise our alert level or not and actually that's not a good thing alert levels need to raise more based on the risks and 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 rather than just the science because the science is only part of the picture here um you know so um another thing that was an issue um that i identified was this issue of the alerts only applying to england and then there being a diversity across the uk uh which obviously creates generally can create a lot of confusion. We did see it created a lot of confusion. Um, it undermined the authority of the alert level system. And the and in, in a way it fragmented people because rather than seeing it as a united front, we as a nation, are, despite all our difficulties right now with various discussions, we are standing together as a nation to fight this virus and therefore we are united. And, and that unfortunately was a lost opportunity. Um, the other thing, uh, the third thing really is about who decides the alert level and how. And the the Joint Biosecurity Centre was set up, um, was promised quite early on, but wasn't actually set up until the end of the summer. And there's very little information on the internet as to what that centre is, who it is, um, who's involved, how they make the decisions, what kind of relationships they have with various government officials and then local governments as well and how they communicate and um you know whether this is a deliberative process or a top-down approach and in many ways it, it kind of almost has a sort of um secretive kind of um sort of um feel to it like it's a sort of terrorism alert level something that sort of needs to be kept under wraps we don't need to know what's going on we just need to know what the output is and and, um, you know, this this kind of leads on to another point, which is the alert level system is sort of more based on a security alert level, like the terrorism alert levels we have. And it's kind of it gives you that feel of, you know, it gives that feel of, um, you know, it actually sort of being there. But actually, the responsibility falls to you to take the actions, not, you know, we're just telling you what the alert level is, but the, the responsibility lies with you. And and that was kind of the the whole UK slogan as well wasn't it stay home save lives protect the NHS and it was all about you taking responsibility and and, and so on so um it it kind of in a way again reinforces that not working together as a team to kind of um combat this this situation combat sorry that's a very uh <laughs> very war-based word uh to kind of fulfill the uh <laughs> terrorism wording there um the other thing is that the public have not seen the value of the alerts um you know, stay alert, control the virus, save lives. There's been a lot of confusion about it. When they first issued the alert levels, we had different steps involved and different steps had different actions, but they weren't linked to alert levels. And so they were like, well, what, what's the point of the alert level? Because actually we're just, we're being told what we can and can't do. So what's the point of the alert level? And that kind of undermines the authority of the warning system when you're issuing stuff outside of it. It has to kind of all link together. Um, and the alert level system's, um, can't operate independently um, they need to be established designed used between all the various stakeholders as well um, and that's something that I don't think um, was particularly well established and I think that's why we saw then the development of the local Covid levels because it became very clear that very different part different parts of the UK required different needs and requirements um, and so they decided to then have this as we see, a standardised system, but it's, you know, you can be in a different tier in a different location. So that's kind of locally adapted within a standard system. And um, and finally, with the, the original system, um, you know, 
how it was used in the media, it was very poorly presented in the media, very few articles dealing on it or discussing it, um, not very user-friendly table showing what was going on. And of course, if you look at the alert level, there's actually no links or guidance as to what you should do at each alert level. Um, the action is very, very basic, you know, like current social distancing measures and restrictions. That's it. Well, well what are the current you know, restrictions for that? that? No, it was too, too flexible. So, um, so there were a number of issues that were wrong with that original system on the basis that the, the first system wasn't really working in October. Um, Boris Johnson then announced the local system that was been put into place. And of course, we can see a number of the things that I identified as flaws have been rectified. There are now specific guidance. Um, it's much more localised. Um, it's uh, but nationally standardised. It's less of a security rubric. There are better graphics. We do have the sort of um, different tiers, colours that are being standardised and used, albeit that Scotland has extended on that, rightly so. And, and, and the other nations have also made their own changes to it. So some lessons had been learned and some are still in place. But, you know, I still think, you know, through just your everyday chit chat with the people that you can interact with is that, you know, people are still quite confused. It's still not very clear. And although there's a lot more information on the web, it's still not very um, necessarily clearly presented. And... Um, and, and and from a very personal perspective, I found it incredibly fascinating this year that I have been trying to uh, publish articles and discuss um, these issues around alerts in the hope to help improve these systems. And there's been very little interest by the media or organisations to discuss these systems, which I find fascinating because... Every single person in the whole of the UK is discussing which alert level they're at and what they can and can't do or going, what are the rules? Oh, I'm not sure. what the Is it two or three bubbles that we can have? Fascinating. It's in everybody, every single household, yet nobody seems to want to talk about it or get any expertise. And of course, I'm not the only expert in the, in the, in the country around this. I'm sure there's many others. And it would be wonderful if there was more out there, but it really... There really isn't. So it's it's been a fascinating story for the UK. Yeah, no, off the back of that, um, I guess I was just wondering how, because the situation has gotten so confusing and mistakes were made early on, I'm wondering where we go from here. Like, is is it too late to kind of, especially with the public, this is kind of an issue of trust at this point, I think, when so many sort of the alert systems were so confusing for such a long time, maybe people don't have the faith now to kind of look into the systems in detail because they kind of think, oh, well, it would change anyway, or, oh, it was kind of arbitrary in the first place. So what do you do in that situation? Is it better to kind of try and rectify something or switch completely? Or like, what what do you think is the best way to go forward after that trust maybe has been lost? It's, it's a very good point. And I think the credibility and the accountability of the system has been undermined. And in a way, it's undermined by the establishment of the new system, rather than um, establishing a system to begin with, preparing it and then rolling out um, it as, a, as a successful system that doesn't need to be modified very much. Um, what, what to do going forward, um, it's very difficult. You know, the national alert level system seems to have just fallen off the radar. All people talk about is the local system now. Trust is so important when it comes to warnings and hazards. And, um, you know, na nations where there's not a huge amount of trust between the population and the government 
can have very unsuccessful uh, warning programs and which can result in significant death tolls. But equally, those nations can set up their own uh, sort of bottom up grassroots uh, warning services and, and functions that, that they then believe and, and trust in. So it kind of the power is then turned to, to the people. Um, I think in the UK, I think with the correct expertise, of which we, of course, have a lot of in science and technology studies in terms of public policy, communication, public engagement, fostering and building credibility, um, I think it is possible to turn it around. Um, There are no specific examples I can think of at this point where that has happened but it does happen of course when governments change but that's a bit more of a a clean slate but I think that if the government was honest and sort of said we're having a review of our system we want to clarify things for the public and we've got the expertise in and therefore we would like to present this slightly adapted system preferably across the whole of the UK then I think I think that would be well received because I think people are feeling confused um and it does feel like the rules are changing all the time, even if they're not, even if it's just gossip, you know. So it's very, um, it's very challenging and it shows you the importance of getting it right to begin with and building that trust. And, and in many countries, the way that it, they've been so successful is because that development of alert levels and warning systems doesn't sit with government like the actual core government, it sits with civil protection and emergency managers, who, of course, are part of government, but they're civil civil service. And so they have that detachment from the broader political agenda on whatever's going on at that that time. And they're able to just focus on the critical element of the disaster. And so they're responsible for designing, developing, implementing and changing it. So we can't just go, oh, Boris Johnson did this, you know, or the government did this. It's like, actually, this the head of civil protection or emergency management has implemented this and we should respect them and their profession and their team in terms of devising that. And I think in the UK, we don't actually have a very strong um, civil protection or emergency management a structure in place it's kind of within the local authorities and it, you know nations like Italy for example have a very strong civil protection and and despite you know the horrendous death toll that they they had they were they were pretty unlucky but they've managed it exceptionally well um, and nations where we see strong uh, civil protection where the decisions around this are not in main government like Japan um, uh, Chile for example is another one um, that they, they, they've really done really well and so I think that's that's a way of mitigating against um, this trust. So, you know, for example, if they were to if the UK government was to say we have now built a team, we're going to lead it with our emergency managers and this is the new system, maybe people would have another uh, a go at believing it. But I think perhaps removing it from central government is key. So, um I believe in the UK, uh, with the various press briefings that we've had, as well as Boris or Hancock or someone from the government, uh, you've also had Chris Whitty or Jonathan Van Tam or someone standing there uh, giving this idea that it's not just politicians telling you what to do. Scientists are backing us up as well. Of course. But then the government have taken some approaches which the scientists haven't necessarily been behind. Um, I've heard the word human shield being mentioned a few times. I'm wondering if there's any suggestion that They've stood someone like Witty up there to to deflect some of the accusations that have been made at them. 
secondly, I wondered if there's any difference in how you approach these kind of warning systems for COVID because of the effect of conspiracies. So my understanding, for example, is we, we can't currently predict earthquakes very well, but we can predict hurricanes and tsunamis, even if you're only giving 30 minutes or an hour's notice. I would assume that in a country like that, when you put up a tornado or a tsunami warning, you don't then get hundreds of people saying tsunamis are a myth. But it seems that with COVID, that whatever the scientists say, there's a percentage of people who think that the entire thing is made up and can be disregarded. And I wondered if that had an effect on the kinds of warnings or the kinds of alert systems you can use, because you're not just having to inform people, but you're also having to argue that you're justified in providing this information in the first place. Don't know if that's... Yeah. Absolutely. You've asked me two questions there, so I'm going to ask the first question and then I'm going to answer the first question and the second question. Because even though you didn't formulate it as a question, you did actually ask me a question. <laughs> so, One of the challenges that any government faces when they are briefing the public about a warning is to give a unified voice. And the problem is that the scientists may have one opinion about what they want to do. Emergency managers might have another opinion. The business treasury secretary may well have a different opinion on what they want to do. Um, but the challenge is, is that you must always give a unified voice. You must all, as they say, be singing from the same hymn sheet because it reinforces the message. It means that there's clarity and you're not generating confusion amongst the people giving the um, orders and that then therefore creates credibility, accountability and clarity. Very, very important in a crisis that you do not get side voices. And quite often it's the people who are into conspiracy theories that do quite often create a lot of confusion in those instances. However, what we've seen in the UK is we've actually seen quite a number of times where various um, chief medical officers, health officers have in a very subtle way um, contradicted what was being done. And I know currently we are having discussions about what should or shouldn't be done at Christmas, even though the law has been passed on what is going to happen at Christmas. Again, that creates um, confusion and it, it undermines the policy itself. And so it also highlights an issue, which is that these issues are complex. We can't just rely on the scientific data to make this information because the scientific data isn't the answer to the problem. The problem is actually how we as a society cope and manage it. And that goes beyond the science. Yes, the science is very important, but it's part of the story. And I think one of the particular um, interesting aspects of the UK, for example, has been the utter dependence and reliance on scientific information to guide the decision making process, when actually, it's the civil protection and the emergency managers that should have been doing that. And they have been completely, as far as I and my colleagues and other colleagues across the extended network of practitioners are aware, there's been very little engagement with those people. They are completely missing. And that is one of the biggest issues that we've had. And so we have these power struggles that we're seeing in these presentations about the information that's being given. And, you know, Chris Whitty in, the, in, the, in, the, in one sentence was kind of like, we've got these new local alert level systems, which we've designed, but they're not designed to be good enough because we're already beyond tier three. So it's kind of like, well, why didn't you design them to have another tier then? You know, um, So it's kind of like, it, it's, it's an interesting, and, 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 and as I said before, it, it puts individuals into very difficult positions, but really it shows the importance of um, 
communicating, discussing and making sure that there's a lot of deliberation and discussion and agreement and buy into what you're doing before you actually issue that information. And that takes time, which is why you need to be prepared so that you can just cut to the chase when things happen. In relation to conspiracy theories, um, yes, it's very difficult because a lot of people like to predict things and um, predict is a word that's used a lot. And, you know, we tend to use the word predict in the hazard world when we can get a pretty good idea, like we can predict something will happen within an hour or so, or we could even predict within a 10 year period, you know, but the idea is we feel certain it will happen within a period of time. And quite often... Um, yeah, with earthquakes, we can't predict earthquakes, but we can detect them and we can sometimes get a one minute warning. With tsunamis, we can't predict them. But if we've got an earthquake, we can say it's probably generated a tsunami. And then if it has, we can say we predict it will hit at this time. Um, but the thing is that these are all very kind of tangible things that we can see and we see in disaster movies and so on. Uh, and despite there being some really good disaster movies around pandemics, um, actually, um, this is something that's invisible. And it is something that um, until you see the consequences of, it's actually hard to believe. And of course, we're all exposed to lots of health scares, whether it's cancer, Alzheimer's, heart attacks, um, you know, just even more generic um, things like seasonal flu that we all experience or chicken pox or whatever, because they are so every day. We've got this sort of weird, challenging idea of the idea of, you know, we've got the health service in place that will help us, but then we've got this thing that we can't see. We're not quite sure how it's going to affect us or this disbelief. And of course, whenever there's sort of disbelief or invisibility, it's rife for people to to make all sorts of theories up. And um, I think that's been the issue here is, you know, the complete disruption to everybody's life has made people feel like perhaps we're doing this for nothing because they're not actually experiencing it but of course we hear frequently from those in hospitals and how horrifying this year has has been for so many of our NHS staff and other key workers and those working at schools and so on Um, and so um, it's really challenging to manage um, those conspiracy uh, artists if you like and and and, and again, this comes back down to trust and faith in your government and the credibility of the system. You are always going to have people that will come up with some kind of story. It's so important that your system, your whole system, your whole management of a crisis is robust, clear, accountable and transparent. Right. Because that's the key thing, because if people can go onto the Internet and they can see what their data is. So volcano observatories, for example, quite often will have their live data streamed online. So if you wanted to, you could spend all day monitoring Mount St. Helens, looking at that data. And so when there's a blip and the alert level goes up, you can go, hey, I can see that data. I know what's going on. I don't need to be an expert. I can see that. And so it builds trust and credibility. And that kind of thing, I think, would be particularly helpful in this case. Um, We don't need to assume that people are stupid. People are actually very capable of dealing with basic data if it's presented in a a good form. Um, And they're good with dealing with complex data if if it's presented in a good form. That's why so many people read The Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawkins, you know, one of the most complex subjects in the world. But millions of people have read that book. Um, or certainly bought it anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> but um, so, you know, again, it comes down to 
then it's down to science communication and being able to to do that and i think um the government's got a long way to go in terms of engaging with good scientific um expertise in terms of communicating this and integrating it into a, a program there is an additional issue as well which we're going to see a lot of in 2020 which are those not conspiracies but those who are anti-vax and so um, the, uh, the vaccine um, is going to raise a lot of issues. Everybody's asking whether you're going to have the vaccine. Oh, it didn't take 10 years to develop, so therefore we're a bit concerned. Um, when actually it's just the time scales have been compressed because of the urgency, not necessarily anything else. And so we're going to see a lot of um, challenges around those people who are, you know, rightly concerned. Everyone should you know, has a right to be concerned about the vaccine. You know, like they've already said, for example, pregnant women can't have these vaccines because that hasn't been tested as to how it would affect um, a child in, in utero. So, um, so you know, there's there's a lot of important things that need to come out there because if we don't get everyone vaccinated, we're going to be in this situation for a, a long time. This is the all the things that we cover in STS around science, um, communication, policy and, and trust. And uh, we, we know a lot about uh, vaccines and anti-vaccination campaigns. And we should be drawing on the experience and the knowledge that we've got from those to help us build a robust programme for this this coming year. On maybe perhaps a bit of a lighter note, actually, you mentioned that um, that there are some good disaster movies out there. Do you have any recommendations if we want to really be? Uh, disaster movies um, are very popular and they can very successfully convey some of the complexities involved in disasters. And the, the films that do that particularly well are those that have really engaged with people involved in that hazard and crisis. So, you know, Dante's Peak was a volcano film that was very much uh, researched with the United States Geological Survey based on a couple of real stories that were merged. Um, you know, films like Twister, for example, were fantastic films, really gave you an insight into tornadoes. And indeed, um, uh, Pandemic um, is a very good film that... that you know, frightening in a quite sort of frightening level has predicted what has happened. And um, again, that was done with consultation. And I think what's interesting, we were talking a little bit about prediction earlier. <laughs> the thing is, like, we all knew this was going to happen. Um, and so it's kind of a bit crazy that we're all surprised about it. And when you watch a film like Pandemic and you see how much that's played out in reality, you kind of think, well, yeah, I mean, they are they are important, as are documentaries on television, and not just documentaries about the science, but documentaries on how it impacts people. And I think um, towards the early part of the coronavirus, we had a lot of Horizon specials and documentary specials around what is this virus? What can it do? Let's get this health visit, this health expert in. But actually, what we also needed to be seeing was, well, how do these, how is this going to play out? How is this going to impact our society? And sort of get some sort of, imaginary futures if you like so that people can measure their expectations I mean we were all talking about how long is this going to last should we cancel our summer holiday should we be cancelling our summer holiday next year you know should we booking should we be booking our ski holidays and things like that you know and what are we going to do for Christmas you know and I think one of the one of the ways that um, an alert level system like that used in New Zealand was very was very uh, useful was because it helped show a pathway to a new normal that could be then managed, and I think that helped drive people to achieve that. And um, 
that's why it's been voted as one of the best responses for COVID in the whole world in various forums and, and surveys that have been conducted. So you mentioned earlier that the 10 things which could be done. Uh, would you like to go into a little bit more detail about those? Yes, I would, thank you. On reflection of what's happened, particularly in the last um, last uh, 10 months or so, I think, you know, just to reiterate that any alert level system needs to be transparent, have clear guidance and be freely available. And that the steps that are in those alert levels have very um, clear ties to particular actions and policies so it's very clear that when you're on a certain alert level you can do certain things and you can't do other things um certainly with the r value um we need to expand on that as a criterion um and look beyond that to also how um other sectors public health social services education businesses are coping with things at that time and that might determine whether we want to increase or decrease an alert level We'd definitely like to see uh, the Joint Biosecurity Centre um, being a little bit more transparent and um, being able to communicate both up and down across government, right down to local levels, um, to monitor what is going on. And um, there needs to be a very clear tie between alert levels and other systems such as test and trace, border controls <clears throat> and quarantines, so that there's a real joined up thinking between all of these things. And, and that, that, that is where the preparedness comes into it. <clears throat> I would like to see a more national alert level system, um, which is across the whole of the UK. The alert level system should be issued to the public through briefings and have very clear website guidance. And we should be seeing a better campaign like posters in workplaces and, and around the place to sort of make sure people are adhering to, to certain um, requirements and measures of each alert level. And I think and a final thing is actually really just making sure that the alert levels are being adhered to. And that means having penalties and, and actually um, following up with breaking the rules. And, and we have seen some of that, um, but, you know, it needs to be enforced. Otherwise, p- people might not necessarily actually act on it. So um, these are the kinds of things that I feel would help strengthen the UK alert level systems and I and I think ultimately for any alert list of a system for any hazard um, there needs to be a number of these factors that, that are pulled together to, to make them a success. So following all of that uh, you've now been involved in the launch of the Warning Research Centre. Uh, would you like to talk to us a bit about what the, the plans are for the centre going forward uh, what your your hopes are for the work that the centre is going to be doing? Absolutely. I think the idea for the Warning Research Centre um, evolved during my PhD studies, um, partly because there was a lot of discussion around warnings internationally following the Boxing Day tsunami in Indonesia in 2004. And there was pretty much a whole decade through the, uh, the first te- uh, decade of the 2000s dedicated to understanding early warnings. And there was one centre established in, in, in Germany that focused on, on warning systems, um, but it has since stopped operating. And I think this year, once again, I found myself aghast at what I was seeing on television going, I'm not sure why this is happening. We should be having warning in place. You know, if we had a warning for the Boxing Day tsunami, nearly 250,000 people wouldn't have died or certainly far far fewer people would have died and I felt exactly the same way again I just thought my goodness we really need to um, set up a centre that tries to bring expertise together around warning systems and 
the idea is that we bring not just academic expertise, but expertise by those practicing it. So those like NGOs or humanitarian organisations. We want to go from government organisations, the big government, you know, cabinet office right through to sort of more local governments, uh, working with businesses, working with all sorts of different organisations and stakeholders to try and look at this issue of warnings. And, and what I wanted to do was, and I think what really helped me push forward to, to developing the centre was the fact that I could see how I could apply what I had done in tsunamis and volcanoes to a COVID alert level system. In a way, it doesn't matter what the hazard is, alert level systems, warning systems all have certain commonalities. And of course, they're bespoke to a certain hazard. And of course, they need to be bespoke to a certain uh, context. But there are similarities. So whether we're talking terrorism, whether we're talking a pandemic, whether we're talking a volcano, or whether we're talking even climate change, there are certain aspects that are similar. Um, and, and you know, we have rapid onset hazards, we have slow onset hazards, like, like desertification and famine too. And so what I wanted to do was bring all of those, all of the hazards together, uh, whether they're natural, whether they've been created by human activity, whether they're cascading hazards, whether they're multiple hazards that happen at the same time. There's lots to be learned and we could be talking to one another and sharing what we've learned through various crises and applying those lessons where we can to help improve. And so the idea of the centre is to facilitate that, not just here at UCL, um, but also globally. And so we've got um, a whole bunch of UCL expertise working on warning systems from all across the university, um, many, many different departments from politics to engineering, uh, right through to geography and art even so you know massive diversity um and then we've got international affiliates who are from who are basically world leading warning experts who will be giving input into the um center too so we aim to launch in 2021 we'll be hosting the 11th annual conference of the institute of risk and disaster reduction uh, with a theme of why warnings matter. So that's our focus for the conference, which will be on the 23rd of June in 2021. Uh, it will be a virtual event, so everyone's welcome from anywhere in the world, and we will be bringing in international expertise around warnings and discussing why they matter, and that's everything from early warning through to, to alerts. And so as part of that um, conference, we will also be launching the warning centre as well. So we will be devising some online training programmes in 2021 for various NGOs and other organisations that are interested in learning more about integrating warning systems into their practices and logistical and crisis management um, policies. And we will also be hosting a number of um, networking events to establish what we want the centre to do. But the hope is that we will be able to input into uh, mainstream policy and be able to provide guidance on that, as well as helping practitioners on the ground that need information, everything in between. But also bringing together that research from all around the world and making it accessible. So there's a huge amount of work that needs to be done. Um, so we hope to get started in, in 2021. We've got a lot of work to do because, <laughs> because we are the only centre in the world. We are the only research centre in the world focused on warnings. There is no other centre that we are aware of that, that does this. And so we want to be the first and we want to 
capitalise on the, the great location of London and the excellence of UCL to bring together that expertise and, and get warnings on the agenda so that people aren't sort of going, why did we not have a warning? I think people need to realise that warnings can help and they need to be um, part of the process of preparedness for all hazards. And of course, being able to respond when things go wrong, like like we saw with Chernobyl, for example. So um, we there needs to be more discussion on this. So we hope that's what the centre will do. Well, it sounds like you've got a really busy year ahead, Karina. But thank you so much for making the time to talk to us. It's sounds incredible really looking forward to hearing more in the new year i also wish everyone a very happy new year and hope that 2021 will help us return to some kind of normality and i really hope above all things that we can learn from what we've experienced to help make sure that next time because there will be a next time we are better prepared and again, that's what the centre is about. That's what a lot of the research is about, is to make sure we can identify lessons from crises and, and, and accidents and mistakes. But if we don't learn from them and make sure that we don't make them again, then then that's a, that's a wasted opportunity. So let's hope that 2021 is a, a good leap forward for us. That's fantastic. Uh, all that leaves us time for is to say thank you very much, Dr. Karina Fernley, uh, for your time. Uh, anyone who wants to find out more about the Warning Research Centre can visit www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash STS forward slash WRC. Mm-hmm.